0: Hi, thanks for joining our podcast at Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. We have a special announcement. A small crew from our church and I co-authored a children's book series and journals that help people find their calling with profits going to the foster community. Our website just launched and we would love for you to take a look and do some Christmas shopping. I dropped our link and a special promo code for our listeners in the description section. This month, all eyes were on the election, as people were hanging their hopes and nightmares on Trump or Biden. And 2020 has been defined by these waves of fears pulling at our attention, whether it's the pandemic, racial injustice, or Kobe dying. Yeah, I'm still hung up on that. Our sermon series, Refocus, is about putting our eyes back on Jesus, instead of being fixated on these external events. I hope that as you focus on Jesus and the gospel again, you'll see the world through his eyes. Enjoy the sermon.
1: Good morning, Renewed Church. Hey, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking he's wearing another jersey. Well, I had to wear my Dodger jersey uh, this morning because I am so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, I know that you indulged me last time as I wore my Laker jersey, but hey, we won, and we're champions, and I have a really great feeling that we are going to win in baseball too, and we are going to be world champions in both sports. So that's what I'm praying for. I'm excited. So if you are an Angels fan, please, please indulge me. Uh, I don't mean to, to be weird. I know that you're not a Dodger fan, but please do that. And if you're a Giants fan, I don't care, right? And if you are a Padres fan, I feel a little sad. So, Jerome, I'm talking to you. But I'm really excited about how the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. And I'm praying for that, too. And I hope you guys are praying for that as well. All right, so last uh, sermon series, uh, we did it on the book of James. And can I share with you, it was very influential in my life, especially uh, during this time, as I was meditating on what the message of James was. And the message of James was really genuine Christianity, what it looks like uh, to be a Christian. And so I've been thinking about it, and I've been praying about uh, just the whole book of James. And the one thing that keeps sticking out in my mind uh, through my prayers and my meditation was uh, verse 14 where it says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And I, I really believe the Holy Spirit has been uh, keeping that idea of mist uh, in, my, in my heart uh, and in my prayers. Uh, because really our life on this earth is a mist. It's for a very short time. And it's really, and I've shared this before, it's a pit stop on our way to our real home, in our way to heaven and eternity. And so we have a very short time on this earth to accomplish God's will before we go. And verse 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do, but they don't do it, to him or her it is sin. And so as I've been thinking and reflecting on uh, those passages The Lord seemed to be reminding me that in this short time here on this earth, David, um, I need you to do the good that you know needs to be accomplished. And what is that good? It's the idea of the gospel, that we as Christians have a mission to evangelize uh, people. And so God has been really speaking to me about resetting my mind on the area of evangelism and to refocus my energies toward evangelism. And so this morning, my, ex, uh, my exhortation to you is to reset your minds, refocus your hearts as a renewed church in the area of evangelism. So what is evangelism? Well, it comes from the Greek word meaning good news, that evangelism is the sharing of the good news concerning Jesus. So when we go out to evangelize, we share about Jesus' birth. We know that uh, it was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament that Jesus, or Messiah, would come to this earth. And we see it in the incarnation that God the Son stepped into time and took on human flesh. He was born on this earth, and we know that the good news is that he lived on this earth, that he lived a perfect life in obedience to God, that he was the only human being that ever lived a sinless life in this fallen world and he took that life and the good news is that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin for our sin for humanity's sin and that he died on the cross as a sacrifice but he didn't stay dead the good news also is that he was buried and in three days he rose again to show that he defeated death that he triumphs over sin and hell and that we are going to be um as Jesus did resurrected as well and so the Bible tells us that he was born that he lived a perfect life that he died that he was buried that he rose again and that now he is exalted the Bible says to the right hand of the father and so he did all this for us Jesus came to redeem and to save a lost humanity and that's what we call the good news Right. During these election times, I'm sure you're as tired as I am of all the politicians and all the promises on the presidential national level as well as on the local level. You hear of all of these promises that these candidates make that is supposed to be good news. And I I know I'm tired of the attack ads of, you know, the flyers that I get in the mail and I'm ready for elections to be done. But can I share with you that none of these earthly candidates can make all things perfect? And I don't think they have a promise that they'll make all things perfect. But the idea is that not a single human being can completely make all things good. But can I share with you one person who can? That is Jesus. Jesus is the one that can make all things perfect. And that is the good news. That it's not an earthly candidate, but it's a divine candidate that will come and will change the world. And my exhortation this morning is to refocus our lives on that campaign. To refocus our hearts on evangelism. That we would go out and that we would ask people to cast a vote for Jesus, the eternal candidate. The eternal one who, because of the good news of what he has done, will make all things right again. You know, uh, we want to study this morning the book of Acts, and as a boy, uh, before sleeping at night, I would actually listen to the Bible on cassette tape. I would actually listen to it on my headphones, and I would do that before I went to bed. And I loved hearing the Bible, especially the book of Acts, because Acts, in its dramatic recording, was the most exciting to me. I would listen to it over and over and over again as a child. You know why? Because Acts is the book of evangelism. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. It's the acts of God's people empowered to evangelize the world. And so what we want to do is we want to look at Acts chapter 16, at the pattern and practice of the early church in the area of evangelism. And many of you take notes, and so what we want to do is we want to look at four principles. Four principles that we will see from the text On how we can share the good news of Jesus with our family, with our friends, and with our community. So we're going to look at it uh, this morning. And the first principle, uh, put this down, is we want to reproduce, reproducing Christians. Reproduce, reproducing Christians. You know, um, back in my college days, I had a roommate um, that I really, really loved. Uh, His name was Shane. Uh, He was actually... um, a preacher boy like me, preparing for ministry, and uh, we were in Bible college together. Shane was 6'2", 220 pounds. He was a wrestler uh, from Michigan, uh, a state champ. He was a really great wrestler, and um, both of us We like to share the gospel, and he loved Jesus. He really did. He's a pastor, actually, in the Midwest today. But anyway, uh, Shane and I, uh, I remember going to a certain area, uh, and I remember we took our four spiritual laws, the tracts, and we separated, and we were going to go, and we are just going to have spiritual conversations with people. I remember after a while, as I uh, came back to where Shane was, I saw Shane talking to what appeared to be a junior high kid, you know, somebody who's uh, pretty young, and he was actually backed up against a chain link fence. And Shane, this uh, six foot two, 220 pound guy, was actually talking to him uh, pretty, pretty excitedly. And the boy, the look on his face was, he was a little bit afraid. And he was up against that chain link fence. And I remember he actually said this. I was a little distance away. Shane didn't see me. He said, I don't want to join. I don't want to join. But I saw Shane talking vigorously to him. So I waited there for a while. And after he was done, uh, he turned around. He saw me. And he started walking toward me with this beam in his eye. And he said, hey, Dave. He goes, I brought someone to Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, I led that guy to Jesus. Well, (laughs) judging from that guy's appearance and how he ran away after Shane kind of left him alone, I realized, no. And so I said, Shane, I think you intimidated that guy for Jesus. I don't think you led him to Jesus. Well, he got pretty upset with me. And so when we got home, he does what he always did uh, because he was a great wrestler. He would like punish me. He'd wrestle me. I get carpet burns and all kinds of stuff. But I remember uh, during that time when I said, hey, I think you intimidated that guy. I don't think you brought him to Jesus. I remember he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, my job is just to get the message out there. My job is just to kind of get the message out there. Well, can I share with you, that is the modern take on evangelism today. Evangelism has been reduced to an impromptu declaration that we just kind of share facts and get a message out there. That the gospel is just about declaring something and our work is done. But when we look at the biblical model for evangelism, evangelism demands discipleship. You know, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Jesus gives us, and we all know it, the Great Commission. And he gives us the model for evangelism. And what does he tell us to do in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples. Right? It's not just about a declaration. It's about making disciples. Our job as Jesus evangelists is to go and win people to Jesus through the gospel. But after that, we're called to build those people up in the truth of the gospel. And then we're to continue to teach and train them to do the same thing. Now, this will require much more work than just a shallow declaration. It's going to require even more sacrifice than just saying something, a bunch of truths, and then kind of leaving it at that. But the early church model, the biblical model for evangelism, if we would take that to heart, if we would practice that, would turn the world upside down. Now, we come here in the book of Acts, and Paul's first missionary journey, he travels to the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, He spends time evangelizing that region with the gospel. And here in our text, in chapter 16, Paul comes to his second missionary journey. And in our text, he revisits that same area. Now let me pick up the verses in verse 1. It says this, And Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Verse 2, The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. So Paul comes back to pick up a 17-year-old disciple named Timothy to go with him on his second missionary journey. Now, we may misunderstand that because we know both Paul and Timothy, very familiar people in the Bible, in the New Testament, and that because they had a close relationship with each other, Paul calls him a son in the faith, that we may misunderstand that Paul was the one who brought Timothy to faith in the Lord Jesus. But the truth was, Paul didn't know Timothy at all when we read our text. In verse 2, it says the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. That means that Paul was picking up Timothy for the ministry based on the references of these brothers in Lystra and Iconium. That they had uh, shared good reports about him. and so based on those reports, Paul was picking him up. You see, in second Timothy one five, Paul is speaking to an older Timothy, and he, and he says this, "I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois and your mother Eunice, and am persuaded lives in you also." I want to share with you. The truth is, in this text, Paul didn't know Timothy at all. Now, why is this important? And this is what I want you to catch. This tells us that it was Paul who converted Lois and Eunice, the mother and the grandmother of Timothy, and trained them in the faith. And so Lois and Eunice, in turn, converted and trained Timothy as a disciple in the faith. So Paul wasn't there when Timothy was converted. It was actually his mother and grandmother who converted and trained Timothy. So that when Paul came back for his second missionary journey, he was able to receive second-generation fruit from first-generation converts. Are you getting this? He was able to go and receive second-generation uh, second fruit. He was able to get Timothy from the first-generation converts that he led to Christ, Lois and Eunice. Now, this is why it's so important to reproduce reproducing Christians. It's because discipleship breeds exponential growth. Paul didn't convert Timothy, but he didn't have to. Paul converted Lois and Eunice and discipled them so that they might make more disciples. And that way, he was able to pick up another person uh, for uh, for his missionary endeavors, right? It may be hard work. It may require sacrifice, but if you disciple somebody to reproduce others, it's going to be so rewarding because we're not simply adding to the kingdom, we're multiplying for the kingdom. If I reach you and convert you to the gospel, that's great, but as I'm doing that, if I'm discipling and training you to also reach somebody, that it's not just me adding to the kingdom, This person will train others, and those people will train others. And so there's a multiplication of the kingdom. Think of what evangelism in our neighborhoods and our communities would look like if all of us were obedient to Jesus' model of making disciples who would in turn disciple others. You see, that is what it means to reproduce, reproducing Christians. And we see it in the, uh, the first century church. The second thing I want you to see is we need to have an in them to win them attitude. Let me say that again. We need to have an in them to win them attitude. Let's look in verse 1 again. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Verse 3, look at it. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I want you to notice something really interesting. Paul has Timothy circumcised. Now, why would he do that? Paul had railed against the false teachers, the Judaizers, who taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation, that you needed to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And Paul defended the idea that everyone, right, who's a Christian didn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. As a matter of fact, in the book of Galatians, he tells the Gentile Christians, Some of you have fallen into this idea that you need to be circumcised in order to have salvation. Well, I wish you would just cut it all off. I mean, it was a very harsh thing to say, but he was so frustrated with this idea that we would add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if that's how Paul was thinking, why would Paul approve of circumcision in the life of Timothy? Well, can I share with you, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is important. Here, this was a cultural reason, not a theological reason. This was a cultural reason, not a theological reason. We look in the text and we see that Timothy was half Jewish and he was half Greek. In the Jewish mind... If you would reject circumcision, that meant you rejected being ethnically Jewish. That means that you were culturally embracing a Gentile lifestyle, not a Jewish lifestyle. So culturally, you would have been outside of the Jewish community. They would have seen you as a Gentile. Paul recognized that all Timothy needed to do to gain acceptance with the Jews so that they could give the gospel to them was to be circumcised. So Timothy's circumcision erased all the cultural barriers. Timothy's circumcision, right, took away all the cultural stumbling blocks. You see, this is an attitude for Paul, an in them to win them mentality. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just listen. In verse 19, Paul says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. You see, this is an in them to win them attitude. You know, we see this in the life of Jesus, We call this attitude incarnational, and Jesus was the preeminent example of incarnational evangelism. He became a human being to win human beings. He took on flesh and blood in order to come into our world and save us. Imagine the sovereign, immutable God of the universe came to this earth physically taking on human form, on flesh, in order to redeem us from eternal death. You see, that is why the incarnation is so important, and that is why we need to be incarnational when it comes to reaching others. Jesus was the ultimate in them to win them person. Paul was following his his example. And as Christians, followers of Christ, we need to follow this example as well. In them to win them. But I want you to notice something interesting that I want to add to this truth. And we find it elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, Paul has Timothy circumcised, but we see elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul rejects Titus's circumcision. Now, both Timothy and Titus were Paul's greatest uh, mentees, right? They were disciples of Jesus Christ that Paul mentored. Now, Timothy was circumcised, but Titus was not circumcised. Now, why is that? Now, let me share this with you. This was a theological reason, not a cultural one. In the, in the life of uh, Timothy, it was a cultural reason, not a theological one. But in the life of Titus, this was a theological reason, not a cultural reason. Because Titus's circumcision would have undermined the gospel. Titus was a full Gentile. There's no cultural reason at all that he needed to be circumcised. Now, the Judaizers, the false teachers, demanded that Titus be circumcised in order for salvation. But Paul defied that because he understood his circumcision was a rejection of salvation by grace through faith without any human works. You see, the essence of the gospel is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and this idea of adding circumcision was actually an undermining of the gospel. John MacArthur says it this way. I love what Pastor John says. To circumcise a Gentile like Titus would have been to impose legalism where the gospel would have been at stake. But to circumcise a Jew like Timothy, who's already a Jew, would have allowed him the cultural freedom to be effective to the Jewish people. So what's my point? We should endeavor to be all things to all pe- all people as long as it doesn't undermine the gospel. We need to have it in them to win them mentality as long as it doesn't undermine the gospel. I've heard guys come to me and say, you know, in order to reach my friend who uh, loves to get drunk, I need to get drunk with him. In order to reach these guys and they love to, to, to get high, I should get high with them for the gospel's sake. I should watch pornography with my friends. I should go to strip clubs with my friends. You know how ridiculous that is? We see that all those things are clearly laid out as sins that undermine the gospel, but yet that could happen in our lives if we misunderstand the in them to win them incarnational attitude. Because that could result in syncretism. I had a young lady, very wonderful uh, Christian, come to me and say, you know what? I want to reach my uh, Islamic friends, my Muslim friends to Christ. And so I was thinking about going to their mosque and, uh, and actually worshiping with them. So that you know, when they entered for prayer, that I would actually kneel and would pray. They would pray to uh, Muhammad, but I would pray to Jesus in order for their salvation. And I told them, you can't do that. Because worshiping with them in a mosque, they don't know that that's what you're doing, and it undermines the gospel. We're not to worship anybody but the true and the living God. You see, we need to be in them to win them in our attitude, as long as the gospel is, is raised up. Okay, number three, p- preach, excuse me, preach God's grace in word and deed. Priest, preach God's grace in word and deed. What comes to mind when you think of the word preacher? I'm sure you think of Wilson Wang, you know, preaching every Sunday, or Billy Graham preaching to, to thousands of You know, the late Billy Graham, of course. These were full-time ministers, and I'm sure you have other ideas of of preachers that you've known uh, in your life or or on TV. Uh, But can I share with you that when Jesus commands his disciples, all of us, he tells us in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He tells all of us that we need to go out and do it. So in the book of Acts, we see that the whole church obeys Jesus' command to go out and to preach, and they preach the kerygma. What it was the kerygma? That's a Greek word for the proclamation of the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus the Messiah. It's the good news. And biblically speaking, we see that preaching refers to an activity done by all of God's people. It's done by the apostles like Paul and Peter, but it's done by deacons like Philip and Stephen. It's done by lay people like Aquila and Priscilla. All who are out there uh, preached the word wherever they went. You see, preaching refers to an activity done by all of us. Not only that, but when we look at the Bible, biblically speaking, preaching refers to an action done outside rather than inside the church. Maybe that's something you know you haven't heard before but really preaching is an action done outside rather than inside the church preaching the charisma was done in the marketplace by everybody see the bible words for activities done inside of the church were words like teaching admonishing exhorting encouraging So the early church's method of evangelism was that everyone would go into the marketplace to share the gospel. And when they brought or introduced somebody to Christ, they would bring those new converts into the church to receive teaching, admonishing, exhorting, and training. And then they would uh, take them and and they would have them go back out into the marketplace to evangelize. You see, this was the first century century a cycle of evangelism and how different it is from our modern practice today. Our modern method of evangelism is let the professionals, let the pastors or the evangelists or the missionaries preach. Let them who are full-time in ministry focus on the uh, idea of evangelism and I really believe that's the reason why our evangelism is so weak. We have the gospel that's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. And we're not going out, and, uh, as an as a army, we're not going out, all of us in the church, and proclaiming it to everyone we see. Imagine if we followed the biblical model that Jesus commanded and commissioned us to follow. That all of us would be preachers going into the marketplace. Well, what did they preach? Let's look in verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers." Now, what were these decisions all about in verse 4? Well, a chapter earlier, chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, it was an ecumenical council, was called together to answer the question of what is the essence of the gospel that both Jews and Gentile Christians could affirm or would affirm. What was happening was, of course, we know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples went all throughout you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh went all throughout sharing the gospel with other Jews. And so the conversions were Jews. They were Jewish people. But when Paul became a Christian, he took people like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and he started not only sharing with the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And Gentiles were coming to the Lord. And so we had Jewish and Gentile Christians. And uh, because of that, you know, there was this, Um, thinking through, well, what is the gospel? I mean, we have this variety of people, this diversity of people. What is the essence of the gospel? And so the Jerusalem Council came to this in chapter 15 and verse 11. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. They came to this decision. We believe it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as the Gentiles are. The essence and the core of the gospel message was salvation by grace. It was preach the grace of Jesus in our words and actions. And that's exactly what Paul does in his second missionary journey. He goes out and he preaches the grace of Jesus in words and in actions. And the Bible says that uh, the church grew in numbers because of it. You know, um, there's a book, I've shared with you about this before, Uh, it's called The Rise of Christianity by a guy by the name of Rodney Stark, who's not even a believer, he's a sociologist and a psychologist, but he answers in his book how an obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant force in the world. And of course, he's not a Christian, so he looks at it purely in uh, sociological and psychological terms. And the one thing that this guy says, and I think it's really interesting, is That the reason why the Jesus movement took over the world was there was an unbelievable grace that Christians poured out into the Roman Empire. It was an unbelievable grace that Christians believed the gospel so much in their hearts that they went out to live it in uh, their spheres of influence. So that in the the Roman Empire, there were abandoned infants. Infants were left to die if nobody wanted them. Christians would adopt them. Christians would start orphanages to take care of them. Uh, Leper colonies, uh, people who had diseases that couldn't be cured were left in the periphery outside of civilization in order to just kind of exist and die. Christians would actually go into those leper colonies to serve them, to share the gospel with them, actually to contract leprosy and other communicable diseases and die with them in order for them to hear the gospel. In pandemic times, uh, people would leave the cities and would leave Uh, Rome, uh, even leaving their loved ones, their mothers, their grandmothers, people that they didn't think could make it. And they would go out uh, so that they could survive. Christians elected to stay in those places, those pandemic-ridden areas, and take care of those people who were left to die. And miraculously, a lot of them lived. Christians, Christians, And those people left to die they were healed imagine the families would come back and see their mother and grandmother or grandfather alive guess what happened to those people they became christians because they saw the immense grace that was given in word and deed and all that the christians would say and in preaching to the whole world was the grace of jesus to save their lives you know that's a beautiful thing preach god's grace in word and deed The last point I want us to look at, and we'll be done, is to persevere with the mission. Persevere with the mission. Let's look in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So, this is what's happening. Paul has just finished his gospel work in Galatia, and now he's planning on going east on his missionary journey. But God closes the door on the most logical way to Asia Minor. Paul wants to reach the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Laodicea and Asia Minor. But God closes the door and says, it's not time yet. And so let's look what happens. In verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. So Paul then goes north to Bithynia so that he can enter and continue his ministry, right, his missionary journey. But again, God closes the next logical way. The Bible says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go that way. Here's my point. Did they stop and give up? Did they say, well, this missionary journey is done. I mean, there's nothing else we can do. Did they get frustrated and discouraged and quit? No. As a matter of fact, Paul continues to move through this narrow corridor of Troas to the very end of the line, the very last door. Hey, let me share with you. As a kid, uh, I did this. I don't know if you've ever done. Did you ever play God with an ant? You see an ant scurrying in the sidewalk, and uh, you get all godlike and you put your hand uh, and block the way of that ant. Have you ever noticed when an ant... You know, uh, when, when an ant uh, encounters a blockade, what does it do? Does it just quit and just kind of sit there? No, it keeps moving. It tries to find another way. And if you ever played God and you took your hand and you went and you blocked it the, the other route so that it couldn't go, what does the ant do? It keeps trying to find a way. It goes another route. And you stop it and you stop it. And if you're a good guy, you'll let it go. If you're bad, you'll kill it, right? But a lot of times when you try to stop an ant, The ant continues to look for a way. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Consider the ant. That's what Paul is being. He's trying all the doors. When a barrier or a blockade comes, he doesn't stop and give up. No, he tries to find the next way. And if that ends, he goes the next way. He doesn't give up. He persistently keeps trying the doors. And sometimes we quit too soon because we think that God should open this door and we think that because it's not open for us, we need to give up when all God wants us to do is patiently, persistently try another door. He wants wants us to try all the doors around us. What does he want us to do? He wants us to persevere in the mission of evangelism. It wasn't until Paul and his team tried all the doors. Let's look in verse 8. So they passed by Mycenae, went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, God's desire was to reach Europe at this particular time. He wanted Paul to go to the cities of Macedonia and Philippi and Athens. But here's my point, and here's something really important. God did not communicate this until all the doors were closed in evangelism to Asia Minor. Why does he do that? Well, I don't know why. I can't tell you that. But God delights in our persistence and our perseverance. That God sometimes doesn't open a door until we try all the doors I mean, I have my, I I can suspect why he does that, but I don't know. And don't allow that to be a frustration in your life. God is teaching us that our responsibility is to persistently try all the doors. Maybe you're in a time of COVID and you can't get out. uh, And you've been evangelizing to some person, but during these several months, you haven't been able to. Is it time for you to quit? Or is it time for you to try another door? Is it time for you to creatively find another way? And maybe that doesn't work. Does that mean you should quit? Or should you find another way? You see, God continually wants us to persistently persevere with the mission of evangelism. Right? God wants us to keep persistently pressing on, trying all the doors. And I guess that's my message to you. Hey, don't give up. I know it's understandable during this time. We've never had, this is unprecedented, right? We haven't had this in a hundred years, but that's not an excuse for us to stop with what God has called us to. We need to reset our minds, refocus, and even renew, renew church, renew the idea of God's mission of evangelism. Number one, reproduce reproducing Christians. Number two, have an in them, to win them attitude. Number three, preach God's grace in word and deed. And number four, persevere with the mission that he's called us to. I believe if we as a church will commit to these things, we're gonna see God work in tremendous ways, ways that we can't even imagine. Will you work with me in the the work of evangelism? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at this, Lord, that we would understand we have a job to do in this short time that we're here on this earth. It's a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. God, we pray that the saving of souls would be our top priority. The rescuing of people, the campaigning for the vote of the Son of God would be the most pressing on our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, guys.